On JPAM's Closer Look, we will be talking to leading authors published in the Journal of Policy Analysis and Management on timely topics such as healthcare, education, immigration reform, and economics. Today, we're happy to welcome Professor Thomas D. to the Closer Look podcast. Professor D. is the Barnett Family Professor of Education at Stanford University. Welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited to get to talking about your recent article on the effect of accountability in the form of a rating system on quality and performance in pre-K classrooms. This was published in JPAM in the fall 2019 issue number four, and we'll have a link to the article up on the website. The article is co-authored with Daphne Basak at the University of Virginia, as well as Scott Latham at Princeton University. But before we get into the details of this study, this is a very exciting podcast for us because we are speaking to our first Vernon Prize winner. JPAM awards the Raymond Vernon Memorial Award since 1985. Raymond Vernon had quite an exciting and accomplished life. He contributed to the Marshall Plan, rebuilding Europe after World War II, and he also was involved in the development of the peanut M&M, which is a favorite snack of many of our listeners, I'm sure. He was a pioneer in using quantitative analyses and computers to study stock markets while he was on the faculty at Harvard's Business School and the Kennedy School of Government. And most importantly, for our purposes today, he was the founding editor of JPAM, of the Journal of Policy Analysis and Management. So the award recognizes outstanding research, specifically the most outstanding article of the previous year. And for 2019, that article is the study we're going to be talking about today, authored by Professor D, as well as Professors Basak and Latham. So congratulations. This is very exciting for us. Thank you. And, and receiving the award was really a deep honor. The recognition of one's peers is always very gratifying, but in particular, mm -hmm. APAM occupies such a unique and important intersection between social science and trying to inform contemporary policy debates. So I'm just really pleased to be in that space. Yeah. Congratulations again. And it's a well-earned honor. And actually, this is the second time that you've been involved in a study that won the award in 2015, you and Professor James Wyckoff, also of UVA, won the award for your work on teacher incentives and teacher performance with the IMPACT program in D.C. So I think this really speaks to the policy relevance and care and rigor of the work you're doing. And I hope our readers check out the previous paper, the 2015 paper, about teacher performance and teacher incentives as well. So Let's get to the award-winning paper today about accountability in early childhood education. From a big picture point of view, what do you find when you look at this study? Well, we're examining a policy reform that has expanded to nearly every state in the last decade called QRIS, Quality Rating Information Systems. And these QRIS reforms essentially provide early childhood centers and the public with a report card on the measured quality of child care settings. And so what we find is that providing this information seems to help drive improvement in early childhood settings. And the reason this matters is we've got quite good evidence that 
access to high-quality early childhood experiences can be really transformational in the lives of children, but we know far less about how to drive quality at scale. And QRIS is essentially our major policy response to that challenge. And we think of this study as providing very early evidence on its impact. Okay. And to define some of the things you you just spoke about for our listeners, what exactly do we mean by early childhood education? Well, especially in the U.S., it includes a diverse set of settings, independent child care centers, various programs that are in public schools, Head Start programs are also under the aegis of these information systems, as well as some religiously sponsored care settings. So we're looking at like ages like three to four mostly? That's right, yes. Okay, and then you mentioned that quality is important. I think a lot of us intuitively think that school quality, teacher quality matters. But what what exactly is a high-quality early childhood setting? Yeah, this is a deeply important question, and I would stress that I think we're really at a kind of 1.0 moment, both with regard to these policies and particularly with regard to these kinds of measurement challenges. So to contextualize this, you know, many listeners may be familiar with all the measurement changes in K-12 through education, the early adoption of reading and math tests, and the more recent movement towards diffuse social-emotional measures. Well, we're still at a very early stage with regard to quality measurement in early childhood. And if anything, it's more challenging because kids are at different ages where their developmental trajectories are so different and so steep. So Mm -hmm. the way we're doing measurement now has focused on a few fundamentals, uh, various standards that measure the qualifications of staff and schools, measures for the quality of facilities, square footage, class size, the use of developmentally appropriate curricula, as well as, and this is particularly germane to this study, efforts to assess classroom quality. And so there's an important first step we've taken, but I very much want to stress that we should almost certainly have an improvement science Mm -hmm. mindset in this space because there are still real challenges in developing valid measures of quality at this stage of life and for these care settings and thinking about their Mm -hmm. integration with K through 12. So a lot of those things you mentioned about, say, something like class size, has the relationship between class size in an early childhood setting and measures of child development. Has that relationship been documented? Well, I think there are almost certainly studies on that topic. But as you know, Mm -hmm. know, the challenges of really credibly causally identifying that are quite serious. And that's been a huge debate in the K through 12 setting. And I think we haven't seen a similar quality of evidence yet for the early childhood setting. Okay. So that's something people are working on, I imagine, in I this space. I think so. I mean, I'll express some agnosticism. Yeah. There might be some high-quality studies that I'm forgetting. But I suspect, okay. as with most things involving inputs, there's still lots of learning opportunities in this domain. Right. And then the other, I guess, sort of definitional aspect of the study is accountability. And what exactly are the different types of accountability that we might implement and apply in early childhood education settings? And how does that differ from the types of accountability policies we implement in other public spheres like K-12 schooling or nursing homes or hospitals or things like that? 
Yeah, that's another important question. And I think one of the most useful taxonomies that's come out of the accountability literature in the K through 12 space is a distinction between what we might call report card accountability and consequential accountability. Report card accountability is simply about making performance indicators publicly available. And without any sort of normative valence on whether a program is doing well or not or meeting expectations or not, consequential accountability will layer on top of that information some sort of judgment about how well is this setting doing. And obviously, many listeners are probably familiar with that in the K-12 through setting under No Child Left Behind. The issue of, like, are some schools failing to make adequate yearly progress was a type of a consequential accountability. Now, in this setting, I would argue that QRIS, particularly the program we study, is also a type of consequential accountability. It's based on various performance indicators, but also provides ratings that carry a kind of normative component that is informative to parents and caregivers. But a second point I make about accountability is, I think, how we think of this from a theoretical perspective, because basically it's about providing information that can empower parents and perhaps shine a light on centers that might be failing to meet our expectations. And Mm -hmm. those components often get emphasized when we're discussing accountability, but I think they also have a narrow character because it's almost a punitive mindset. Like, let's find the underperformers and give them high-powered incentives to improve by some degree of public shaming about how well they're doing. I, I think that's a bit of a narrow description of the theory of change here, though, because I think it can also include providing center staff with information about what they're doing. I suspect many motivated, caring educators don't necessarily know how well their classroom is doing, how well their institution is doing, particularly in comparison to our expectations and how well others are performing. And so I think Mm. that's a component of the theory of change as well. It's not just what we might call moral hazard or a test and punish mentality. It's about providing Mm -hmm. information that can guide organizational improvement. Yeah, and you mentioned an interesting aspect of the of the consequential type of accountability. I always thought of consequential accountability as the consequences being some sort of actual consequence from the policymaker, from the state, or from the district. But you mentioned that there also are maybe we'd call them indirect consequences of a rating, in the sense that the rating then changes parent enrollments or parent decisions about where to send their children. That's certainly a consequence of the rating system, even if it's not a consequence directly meted out by some referee or some policymaker. Absolutely. And I think those kinds of parental responses are, in many ways, a uniquely compelling outcome measure and one we use in the study that get us around Mm -hmm. some of the concerns we may have around properly measuring child development when kids have such variegated developmental trajectories at this young age. So that's Mm -hmm. one of the reasons we chose to focus on future enrollment, the revealed preferences of parents trying to do well by kids as an outcome. Yep. Okay. And and speaking of, of those parents' revealed preferences and the decisions they made, you were studying parents and ECE centers in North Carolina which is where the policy was enacted. And that that was enacted at the state level, correct? Yes, it's a statewide program. And 
One of the reasons we think North Carolina is such a good setting is it's one of the earliest adopters of these types of reforms. I think their first year, they introduced it in 1999. So it's a fairly mature system. And there's this old maxim in program evaluation that says, evaluate no program until it's proud. You know, I think it's important when we're looking at the effects of programmatic initiatives to really try to get a sense of how well they're working in maturity. And our evaluation window here only began 10 years after the program was introduced. So I think that's important. It gives us a chance to see a system that has been revised, that has taken root in practice. And also another key feature is the degree of participation. In many states that are now rolling out QRIS reforms, the participation of centers is voluntary, but that's less so in North Carolina. It's more of a universal system where every center has to participate at least at a basic level. Okay. And the ratings of those centers, could you say a little bit about how the ratings are actually computed and how much variation in the ratings is there? I always worry with programs like this that that everybody gets a, a top rating and then the ratings aren't so informative. Could you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, that kind of inflation is always a concern and dovetails with some of these fundamental issues about how valid are the measures that are being used. But to back up for a second, mm-hmm. the system is called the star rated license system, and it rates early childhood care settings on a scale of one to five stars. And many states are using these kind of star systems. And under the Every Student Succeeds Act, many K through 12 state systems are now using these kind of star ratings. Now, in North Carolina, these star ratings were based on where a district rated on a 15-point scale. So it's rather a complicated kind of matrushka doll kind of system. The stars are okay. based on where centers are rated on a 15-point scale. That 15-point scale consists of seven program points, seven education points, and one additional quality point. Now, embedded within those subscales, though, what's really critical is a widely used method for rating classroom quality. So as part of this system, state auditors go into early childhood centers and will sit and observe multiple classrooms and rate them on what's called an environmental rating scale. And this is a rubric that in in most settings has 43 questions where observers rate the quality of classroom interactions and facilities and the way the teacher engages with students, et cetera, on a one to seven scale. And then those 43 items are averaged. So again, there's multiple things that go into it, but facilities, classroom quality, staff qualifications that then map into that overall five-star rating that I suspect many listeners have seen mm-hmm. as they're driving around and seeing early childhood settings. You may see signs that say, this is a four-star center, this is a three, this okay. is a five. So they like put up a poster in the window of the center yes. advertising their good rating. And in fact, as an aside, I sometimes people ask me, how do you get research ideas? Uh-huh. It's from driving around in the real world and seeing those signs and beginning to think about yep. what's going on with that policy, how mm-hmm. is it designed, what kind of impact is it having? And speaking of centers may be putting posters up in the window, how else would parents learn about the ratings, both in terms of seeing what the rating is of a given center, but maybe more importantly, how do they find out like what the rating is and, and how credible the rating is? Those are all good questions. And I think 
Certainly in most states, I think there's a required public physical posting of them at the center. But also if a parent is looking around, I think they could go to state websites and often find this information there and and search for and try to identify the particular features of of programs. There's always this question, though, of is that enough? You know, is the information getting right. to the decision makers that it needs to? Mm-hmm. And, it, and at some level, the results we find, which is that the incentives embedded in these star ratings seem to drive center yeah. improvement. That's evidence that parents were finding this information and reacting to it. And I guess I'm thinking if another state wants to do this, it would be helpful to know how they went about trying to get the word out. You know, you could imagine TV commercials or social media campaigns that alert parents to this new rating system and and help them interpret it. Do you know of North Carolina doing anything like that? Or is it more sort of word of mouth that it got around? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm not sure exactly how they make it publicly available, other than I believe it's required to be posted at the center and they may require Mm -hmm. notification to the parents who are enrolled there which doesn't speak to the people who are thinking of being enrolled there, but... Right, right. And one of the big punchline results then is that you see that the ratings affect enrollments. And that means that they also affect the center's financials too, I'd imagine. Do you have a sense of how that works and how that factors into a center's incentives? Yeah. So basically, we're trying to test the theory of change here by examining, does being assigned to a lower versus a higher star rating have implications for future center performance. Now, part of what Mm -hmm. that incentive contrast includes is some differential public information about how well it's performing. But as you note, it also includes some differences in state subsidies. The state provides subsidies for income-eligible children to attend early childhood care. And the amount of those subsidies varies by counties, but critically, it also varies by the star rating. So a five-star center Mm. on average might receive $640 for an eligible child to be enrolled there, whereas a three-star center might receive only $560. So it's not a huge financial difference, but it's far from trivial. Okay. It's one part of the overall incentives created by the differences in the star ratings. And so do you want to say a little bit about how you go about identifying the effect of the policy here, the effect of the policy change? Sure. And, And this is, of course, really critical. To what extent can we know we're really identifying the true causal impact of the incentives this program creates? Well, we rely on how the underlying measures of the classroom quality, that environmental rating scale, maps into stars. And basically, the rule the state used included that if the average rating on that seven-point scale across all those items was at Mm -hmm. 4.5 or more, the center was particularly eligible to have more star ratings. If the average rating were below 4.5, it was much harder if not impossible, to get, say, four or five stars. And so we see in the data, as we look at centers that at baseline have average ratings just above or just below that 4.5 threshold, a huge difference in Mm -hmm. the probability of having three or more or four or more stars. And so we leverage that and say, okay, let's compare centers that are around that threshold and look at their Mm -hmm. future performance. 
Do the ones that were assigned to a lower rating see a reduction in future enrollment? Do their star ratings improve in the future? Does their measure of classroom quality improve? And what we find is that centers that are just to the left of that threshold that have been kind of randomly assigned, basically, to a lower star rating, they improve Mm -hmm. differentially relative to the centers on the right. And those gains are pretty narrowly driven by the kind of contrast we're studying. It's driven by gains in that measure of classroom quality. But it's not enough to keep parents from leaving, because we also see that they shed enrollment. Now, in theory, it could be that they decided to scale down to maybe improve their quality. But I think the most obvious explanation is that parents saw the lower rating and may have decided Mm -hmm. at the margin to look elsewhere for their children. Okay. And so the, the key to all of this is that the centers that just missed getting a higher star rating are all else equal quite similar to the ones that just barely got a higher star rating. That's exactly right. I mean, whether a center's average classroom quality is above or below that 4.5 threshold is effectively Mm -hmm. random, but has big implications for whether they have more or fewer stars. Right. Well, that's a great natural experiment to identify the effect of the stars. And it's known as a regression discontinuity technique, which is something we've heard about a couple times on the podcast so far. Certainly a powerful tool for policy analysis. And describing the results, you mentioned that one thing that a center might do when they miss out on a higher score is actively try to improve to improve their score. And we do see evidence of this. Is that right? We do. We see that centers that were just to the left of that capricious threshold, that influence that gave Mm -hmm. them lower stars, really gained relative to those to the right. Within five years, they'd essentially closed that gap. And the gains were really concentrated on that measure of classroom quality. And that's an important note, because I think one of the concerns people have with accountability programs like this is what's commonly referred to as Campbell's Law, the notion that when you provide incentives to improve a particular measure, you may only get narrow improvement in that outcome. So Mm -hmm. the fact that we didn't see improvement on other dimensions that were relevant for the star rating is suggestive of that concern. And of course, this doesn't mean we shouldn't have performance-based management of different organizations, but it means we should be mindful of what we're measuring and attentive to potential unintended consequences of poor design. Right. It doesn't sound like they lowered quality in the other dimensions, just that they stood their ground there. No, that's absolutely right. So there's not a story here of negative and unintended effects. But I think mm-hmm. we just want to you know, bear in mind having good design principles, especially because we're at such right. an early stage of these types of policies. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like, from my read of the study, that the effects are driven by centers in areas where there's other centers nearby. And that sounds very intuitive to me as someone who thinks about competition and different childcare centers are are competing for clients, for customers. What can you say about that competition dynamic versus cases where there's only one center in town and parents have fewer options? 
Yeah, I think your interpretation is exactly right. And I want to stress that this kind of the role of context and understanding the impact of a policy can often be really important. So in this context, having a lower rating will only influence a parent's behavior or at least influence it more substantially if they have some other option. But in many, particularly Mm -hmm. more rural communities, there just aren't very many early childhood care options. So a lower star rating is going to have a much attenuated effect in those settings. And I don't think we've begun to think about like what that might mean from a policy perspective when there's heterogeneity across different types of communities. But certainly from a social scientific perspective, it makes sense that when you give parents options, you give them more opportunities for care environments for their children, that's going to make them more responsive to the kinds of performance information this policy made available. Yeah, I think your point about context is exactly right and, and something we all need to keep in mind when studying and interpreting the results of studies like this. So I think we've talked about a lot of the different aspects of the policy and and different responses on different margins by different actors, the centers, the parents. Do you want to take this time to summarize the main results one more time? Sure. Yeah. Our main conclusion is that the incentives created by uh, performance-based information systems in the early childhood space seem to be Mm -hmm. achieving their intended goals. The incentives they create seem to drive improvements in the quality of early childhood settings. So we see an improvement in the quality of the settings, and then that also maps into higher enrollments in the higher quality centers. Well, that's right. We document those performance improvements, both in increases in measured classroom quality and in the behavior of Mm -hmm. parents who were more likely to leave centers with lower ratings. And again, part of the reason this is important is we've got this really substantial challenge around how to provide high-quality early childhood care settings at scale. Again, we know high-quality early childhood care can be transformative in the lives of children, but the challenge we faced is how to ensure that kind of quality uniformly and at scale throughout the country. So these reforms are our major Mm -hmm. effort to do so, and this early evidence is providing some encouragement. But One of the things I really want to stress to listeners is, again, we're very much at a 1.0 moment here. And I wrote an Mm -hmm. op-ed recently for Education Week on this topic, drawing parallels between our experience with K-12 through accountability and No Child Left Behind, waivers, and now the Every Student Succeeds Act, and what's going on in early childhood care with accountability reforms like QRIS. I think one of the problems with K-12 through accountability is how politicized it became. So, for example, yeah. the best evidence on No Child Left Behind suggested it was actually having some positive effects, not transformative ones, but positive ones. But mm-hmm. everyone also recognized that there were flaws with that early design, only focusing on reading and math, focusing on proficiency thresholds and not gains, not focusing Mm -hmm. on social-emotional dimensions. There was wide consensus about that. But because it became part of a larger political scrum, we delayed innovation and revision in that K-12 through accountability. And eventually, I think a Mm -hmm. lot of cynicism took root. I think it would be wonderful if we could avoid that fate with accountability in early childhood. I would like us to take a very emphatic improvement science posture 
where we involve practitioners, we involve the teachers in care settings as well as policymakers in constantly trying to revise and improve and assess what's working and what isn't. And the trick will be to do that, to have that kind of inclusive policy revision process that still maintains really high standards. But I think it's important, Mm -hmm. we have another opportunity here to get accountability right and to allow it to mature and improve rather than becoming a kind of pawn in a larger political conflict. Yeah, I fully agree and think that's right. And so building on that, is there anything specific to this study and this policy in North Carolina that you think that policymakers, whether they're at the state, federal, or even local level, should think about as they design and retool their early childhood accountability programs? Well, one is whether centers are required to participate or not. I think in many states, it's participation of any sort is totally voluntary. And obviously, Mm -hmm. you can't expect the reform to have the kinds of effects we saw in North Carolina, if that's so. So just the terms of participation, I think, are really important. But the other major challenge Mm -hmm. is a joint one between researchers and policymakers to improve and validate the kinds of measures that are in these systems and that we're linking to incentives to make sure they're Mm -hmm. really valid and that they robustly predict school readiness for children as they enter the K-12 through system. Yeah, for sure. And we could certainly use more research practitioner partnerships and researcher policy partnerships to really nail some of these questions down and and fine-tune policies. And then, I guess, relatedly, is there anything that you'd specifically suggest that center directors and center managers take away from the study? Oh, it's an interesting question. I hadn't really thought about that. This is not so much from the study per se, but as part of my larger concerns around the policy context that surrounds it. Mm -hmm. I would like to see center directors get actively involved in some of the design elements associated with this system. Because again, the parallels to K through 12 serve as a kind of cautionary tale. These incentives are going to be effective and help drive the system improvements that everyone wants, Mm -hmm. including care center directors, if they feel involved and if they feel they have voice and agency in articulating standards that they know really matter and that are under their control. So I think the fact that we're seeing positive effects here, that these reforms are going to scale throughout the country, mm-hmm. should encourage directors and practitioners in this space to get involved in, in how they're designed. Yeah, and I think that's a, a good point I hadn't thought about, but the center directors and, and so on having a say in, in how the standards are made makes them necessarily buy into and believe in and accept the measures more generally, which is, uh, to draw another parallel to K-12, a, a problem that some of the K-12 accountability policies had is that teachers and principals might not believe the metrics of their school performance or of their teaching performance. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And that's why I think our experience, our parallel experience with K-12 through accountability really is a cautionary tale here. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then maybe most importantly, what about the customers of these early childhood centers? Is there anything that parents should be on the lookout for when they're choosing a center? Well, I guess my advice would be to pay attention to these data, but also to go beyond just the star rating. There's actually quite a Mm -hmm. bit of richness 
at least in North Carolina, in the various metrics that lie underneath this, that include you know different dimensions of facility, staff quality, classroom quality, and to complement that with their own observations of the center. So rather than just relying on the overall star rating, I think the more richly textured data is readily available mm-hmm. to them, and I think will allow them to think about what's the right setting for their child. The only thing I was thinking of adding was that there are probably 49 other RDs out there, an opportunity for researchers. I mean, this was an early study in this space, but given how these have been adopted almost universally throughout the country, Mm -hmm. there are really compelling and important research opportunities to assess whether it's working similarly in other states. And what might explain what kind of design features that vary across states might explain the differential impacts we see as we look across the different systems that have been implemented recently. And I think it's not just about seeing does the success we documented in North Carolina replicate, but also understanding why it may occur in states like North Carolina and possibly not in others. I think learning Mm -hmm. from comparative studies across states that have different design features will be really generative and helpful for the entire reform initiative. Yeah, that's an important point, I guess, to replicate the result and and see how it generalizes outside of North Carolina in a high-quality research design. So there's certainly lots of opportunities out there for researchers and graduate students, and even states who want to partner with researchers. Thanks for pointing that out. Well, you've certainly given us a lot to think about and things to think about for all the different stakeholders in this space, parents, center directors, policymakers, researchers. So I think we learned a lot from this great study. Congratulations again on the Vernon Prize, and thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you. It was a real pleasure. Great. Hope to have you on again soon. Thank you. Thank you for listening. This has been a production of JPAM, the Journal of Policy Analysis and Management, in conjunction with American University's School of Public Affairs. Please follow us on the APAM website and search for the JPAM podcast.